you've studied 1 Corinthians at any point in your life, maybe recently or some time ago, you observe that at least on the surface, the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, is addressing some really practical issues that faced the early church. He deals with divisions in the church and sexual immorality and lawsuits and disagreements and spiritual gifts in the local church. It sounds like any Baptist church at any point in history. And he's interested primarily in the midst of all of this and how the early church lived out their faith. Because the problems that he addresses in this letter and 2 Corinthians were really a reflection of the larger problems in the Corinthian culture. The church was just doing the same things they did. They were just doing it in the name of Jesus. To thrive as a Corinthian, as a person in Corinth, to thrive meant you succeeded. You rose above the rest. You were cream of the crop. You had the most ships in the fleet, the most money the most friendships, the most galas, the most points. What your Corinthian neighbors thought of you mattered most. And so with an obsession with what other people thought about them, they came to church. With an obsession about their reputation in the community, they came to church. And so inherently such a worldly view of reality damages the church, if not renders it ineffective altogether. I think to summarize the Corinth culture, the Corinthian culture, I'd use the words of Dr. Barclay, who says this, that the Corinthians' main problem was they did not view this world as decisively evil, and consequently, they were ready to make compromises with it. And so the result was a broken church in grave danger and the danger of becoming so much like the world around it that it failed to stand out as anything better and different. It failed to be a true and better alternative to the narrative of the world. And so, and so Paul addresses the way that that manifests itself in Christians having a, a light view of sin, of even welcoming sin into their lives and their homes and their church. And it's, it is so accurate, <laughs> a picture of the modern church. This letter hits me at a time in my ministry. Well, let's just say this, God is sovereign and I recognize in this new season, right, I'm seven and a half years in, my hair is gray, and I don't think it would be if I wasn't a pastor. It's 40% on the side. That's why I keep it short. But if, if I were to look at the first seven years and repent for one thing, it would be, to fo it would be my focus on strategy and, ad and advancement. And it seems good and right. But if I could change that as I'm praying, the Lord will allow me to focus these next seven years on simplicity and consistency. And that's what Paul's calling for. That's what he's, he's setting them up. He's not going to come in and saying, hey, you're sexually immoral and jacked up in a thousand different ways. 
he is reminding them of consistent truths. And so he begins so generously and graciously. He know, they know what's, you know, he's getting ready to deal with some, and we're going to, we're going to deal with some hot button topics in the life of the local church in this letter. But listen to the words and how he founds and grounds his letter in foundational, consistent truths. He looks at them in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a thanksgiving prayer given by your Spirit that says nothing about our ability <laughs> or our greatness or our giving potential or our works. This is a prayer pointing to your faithfulness, O Lord. This is a thanksgiving to you, O oh God, for your provision and love and mercy and goodness in Christ and your promise to sustain us to the end. Lord, Paul does not congratulate the church on attend breaking attendance barriers or any of the stuff that we could claim as our own for we would boast in it. And so God, we come to you asking for the simplicity, the wholeness and the goodness and the rightness of a people who are obsessed with Jesus. I pray in his holy name. Amen. All right, so I want to set this up a little bit. You see that the subtitle of this sermon is not in your bulletin, but it is on the screen. Ham sandwiches. What in the world do I mean? Today, I want to demonstrate that it's not a common sense of the world. It's not our collective ability, and it's not the wisdom of the world that will bring success to this church in Corinth or this church at Perkinsville. I want to demonstrate that it is the far simpler things, the less visible things that truly matter in the life of the local church and in Christian homes and in the world around us. I want us to imagine an uncommon sense which must drive who we are as people and as a church and to help you just, just, just to understand where I am and, and perhaps understand the simplicity from which I, I speak this morning, I put ham sandwiches on the screen because it's my, it, it relates to my favorite quote I've heard in the last 10 years. January 13th, LSU beat Clemson. In the National Football Championship. Now, Clemson has an outstanding program. Much of the support they've gained over the last few years has been a result of Debo Sweeney's culture and outspoken faith and the way in which he leads with such conviction and consistency. But it's not Clemson or Dabo's faith I want to talk about. 
It's the other guy, Ed Orgeron. I love this guy. So here's the context of this quote. He's just won the national championship. If you don't know his story in coaching, it's phenomenal. This guy followed and fell into alcoholism, lost his coaching jobs. I mean, this guy, he went to play for, his dream was to play for LSU out of high school. He went there, he got homesick a few weeks in, had to go back home and played, played elsewhere in the state. But this guy had multiple falls from grace, so to speak. And so his story is phenomenal. But I love this quote. He's on ESPN right after winning the national championship and the commentator's asking him all kinds of great questions. And he says, you guys have won. He says, you're in, they're in New Orleans. And he says, you're in a town that's built for a party on a normal night. And he says, and tonight's not a normal night. From now until you meet with your coaching staff next week, what, how are you going to spend this time? Essentially, how are you going to party up in the Big Easy, in the city of New Orleans, and Ed Orgeron in that, in that South Louisiana, that Cajun draw right there? I can't do it, but I'm going to try. He says, you know, we're going to go back. He goes, we got a nice week. I got Kelly and my three boys. We probably going to get a ham sandwich or some boudel. Go to bed, wake up tomorrow, do it all over again. We're going to go get a ham sandwich. Brothers just won the national championship in college football. He's going to eat a ham sandwich, praise God. But he says this, he continues, he says, we just simple folks. I'm just quoting him exactly. We love our life. I love my family. We don't go out. We don't do things like that. We're going to represent the state of Louisiana. We're excited. We're going to eat a ham sandwich. Praise God. There's a simplicity and a steadfastness in a ham sandwich. I've been obsessed with this quote for weeks now. Well, since January 13th. I've listened to it. I've watched the video. I've watched it no less than 50 sometimes. The man has an aspiration for this team, this program called One Team, One Heartbeat. Nothing else changes. Regardless, he, he loses, he wins, he eats a ham sandwich, and he does it again. Man, this man understands the discipline, the consistency, and the simplicity that it takes to see the truly greatest things happen. He's not tossed to and fro by everything that comes his way. Again, he loses, he wins, and what does he do? Eats some boudel and ham, or has some boudel and ham sandwich. There's something deeper driving this type of personality. There's an uncommon sense about a leader like this. He speaks about the Lord. He speaks about his faith. But he's not on the front of magazines and speaking at Christian conferences for his faith. No, he just lives it. I want to be a ham sandwich kind of church. Like simple. We don't get tossed by the losses or the wins. We just do. It's the simple, consistent things that matter. One, a church that is a person, a leader, a church that is so consistently simple and committed not to the things we do, but rather to the things that have been given to us, entrusted to us, promised to us, that, that, that win or lose, our identity remains true. In just a few words of thanksgiving, Paul grounds the Corinthian church in this ham sandwich theology. Go back to the basics. It's the simple stuff. And regardless of what comes at you every single day or month or year or season, he thanks God for the things that God did for them. And thanks God for everything that God will do for them in glory. You notice how he frames this? He thanks God for what he has completed in the church at Corinth. And thanks God for for what God will complete in the church at Corinth. That dash in between that we talk about in that common poem, he doesn't mention. He doesn't mention the here and now. It's that dash in the middle of what God has done and what God do. That's God, what God will do. That's where the church argues. That's where the church leans in on their own strength and their own ability and their own power. That dash, Paul will say, is where all your problems are. 
and they have problems and you have problems, Corinth, because you as a people are relying more on yourself, on the common sense of the world, on your reputation, on your wealth, on all the flashy lights of the world around you, than you are thinking upon what God has done in you and what God will do for you. In a city built for a party on any given day, the church of Corinth was eating it up. They were living in the midst of the party that was Corinthian first century culture. You're trying to have both, church. You're trying to have both the world and righteousness. Here's the point of all this in my ham sandwiches. As I walked in this room yesterday, absolutely in spiritual crisis. What do I mean by spiritual crisis? There are times when I come and, and I have all the fancy preaching books and the outlines and the main points and the subpoints and the illustrations and the applications. And it's just junk. So I came in here in spiritual crisis and I imagine your faces. Many of you are sitting in this room. And I ask God, what kind of people are we to be? What kind of people is Stacy to be? What kind of people are Seth and Sharon and, and Sam and Abby and all the others? What kind of people are you to be? What kind of people are we to be? Uncommon people. That's what you're called to be, to live in such a way that we stop believing so much in ourselves, putting so much weight and expectations on ourselves to lead from a position of weakness. And Paul sets it up for us. That's what, that's what he's pushing forth to the church at Corinth. He says, listen, you need to quit you need to quit seeking things in your own strength and your own power and your own wit and your own wisdom and your own ability. Everything you need has been given. Everything that we need as a church has been given. Everything. You know, I get it. I'm not against it. I'm for it. But my least favorite part of this bulletin is right there. Right there. And we need it. I'm getting, I love it. I mean, it's, but brothers and sisters, Jesus himself says this word that's just fascinating to me. He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. And Travis was talking about this this week. You know, we think about the money, we get it. Caesar's face is imprinted upon that coin. So that's Caesar's. Jesus is clearly not pointing to some other, some other coin or form of trade that's Jesus. He's looking at you as the imprint of God himself. And the thing that frustrates me or hurts me about this, and I love it and I agree with it, and I think we're gonna, it's going to stay there, is that nothing else in this bulletin speaks to our own ability quite like this little section right here. We did it, we didn't. We can, we might, we won't. I think that this represents, I just don't imagine walking into the church at Corinth and seeing this. I just don't. I don't imagine seeing it. And it's good, it's right, but it is a great illustration that many times our hearts are captivated by what we can do rather than what God is doing and has done and will do. And this is just a representative. I think this is a heart check for you in this moment. It's not just this, but this is a powerful illustration that's printed every week. At the bottom of this thing is some powerful stuff. These are people who are hurting. These are people who the Bible calls us to pray for. This is where it's at. 
the, the focus of this thanksgiving us not on what you all did with your collective potential or the, the, the sum of the parts is, is so particularly great. No, no, he is, he is lessening the praise attributed to them and removing any kind of encouragement to their works. He is in a way demonstrating how the Corinthians may live in order to see true power, not a false power resting in human wisdom and ingenuity and religion and wealth. He is guarding them from from assuming that false power is true power, that false strength is true strength, that the appearance of health may not be health. And so he sets their minds on the only metric of true health, the only perfection of true health, and that is the completed work of God in their lives. He says, Corinth, in the midst of your debate, in the midst of your disagreement, in the midst of your quarreling, in the midst of your sin, look back to the things that God has fully given you. Verse 4, grace in Jesus Christ. He has given us grace in Christ because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I mean, like, he is thanking God for the Corinthians for getting the gift. I love that. He is thanking the Corinthians for receiving the grace of God in Christ Jesus. There are two aspects to this grace. First of all, the grace of God in Christ Jesus. The grace that God pours out to a people through Christ and calls Christ to be the mediator of this grace. But uh, he's very intentional about it. You did not go out and procure this grace. You did not go out and earn this grace. This is, this, is the, uh, this is the opposite of what you find in the Corinthian marketplace. You did not barter. You did not, you did not demonstrate your worth. No, God gave you this grace. We've already heard these verses from Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. I think this is one of the most constant reminders of the gospel we need in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, right? And it's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Why is it a gift of God? Why is it not a result of works? Because you and I would boast in our talents and our abilities to receive some grace that we earned. He is reminding the Corinthians because much of their disagreement was based on priority. Whose gift is better than the other person's? You know, the Corinthian church was known to lift up and esteem the covenant of marriage, but they said nothing about extramarital affairs. It's this dualism they were able to live their lives in, going to church and smiling and yet living completely separate lives in the streets of Corinth. No, it's not you who earned this. It's not you who deserve this. It is God who has given this. Then he says this thing about not only have you been given grace, verse 5 says that he has enriched your speech and knowledge. Enriched your speech and knowledge. It's an interesting praise. Basically, another way of saying this is that your speech and knowledge have become rich. I like that better. Your words have become true. Your knowledge has become full. Now, he is not saying I made you really smart geniuses so you can go out in the world and beat everybody in debate. All right. In fact, what Paul is saying here is the opposite of that. Look, if you will, I hope you have your Bibles open. Look at how Paul speaks about these things, about speech and words of the world uh, in, this, in this same uh, area. In chapter 1, verse um, uh, 17 Chapter 1, verse 17. We're going to go through this just a a few verses for me to show you what Paul thinks about human wisdom and human words. 
You know, I love this when people come into the church with just some good old human wisdom, don't you? <laughs> Gosh, I contributed too much human wisdom to the local church, I'll tell you that. I have I brought way too much of my, my wisdom to this place, and I bet you have too. I don't need it. I don't, I don't want it. I don't want mine. I don't want yours. Because here's what he says about human wisdom. For Christ, how, first, uh, verse 17 of chapter 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, but not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If you use the, the big words of the day and seem really smart, you're going to put power in who? You're going to put power in the sender, the one who's speaking the words. No, he doesn't want to rob any power of the cross of Christ. And so he's going to use simple words. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing. Verse 20. We're all in chapter 1. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. So Paul is not saying in, this, in, in verse 5 here that he's going to make you great debaters and, and, and wonderful intellects in the midst of culture. No, he's going, to, he's going to bring truth to your speech and knowledge. The kingdom of God depends not on talk, but on power. And then verse 6 He's asking them to look back about four years. He says, remember when I came preaching the gospel of Christ there in Acts chapter 18? The testimony of Christ was confirmed amongst you. As Paul preached the gospel of Christ, crucified the message awakened the Corinthian believers. Believers like Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, and his entire family was baptized. He says, have you lost your way? Have you forgotten your first love? Just like the church at Ephesus does there in Revelation 2. Here's what he's saying. I recognize that you become callous in the rhythm of the world. That the world wears on you. And he's pointing them back to beginnings. But he also says in verse 7, not only these things, that you are not lacking in any gift. The Lord supplied many gifts but they divided over these gifts, didn't they? The Corinthians' greatest liabilities, one commentator says, the Corinthians' greatest liabilities and greatest strength were their gifts. Just because as material riches can inspire poisonous, self-destructive attitudes and behaviors, so can spiritual riches. The bottom line is this, that God had supplied the gifts, called the church to use them and trust in His provision. No experts needed. Let me just say this to this whole idea of everything that we need has already been given. When you feel like nothing is complete, when you feel like everything in, is in limbo, I think about this corporately as a church. I think about this personally as a human. When you feel constantly behind, the completed work of Christ, everything that we need has already been given. I need you to believe this, church. I need you to believe this because the greatest hesitancy in the church being the church is the belief that we need something more. That we will, when we get that, when we attain this, when we feel more confident here, when we, when we, when we, when we reach some 
degree, or we, we are always evaluating ourselves based on standards not given by God, but assigned by the world around us. Now, so he reminds them, he says, all of this has been done in you. But secondly, he, <laughs> I love this. He ties inextricably the life of the church to abiding in Christ, to union with Christ, right? And so your strength is not in your, uh, your strength is not in your ability, all right? You didn't, you didn't, first of all, you didn't earn any of this. And your power and influence in the community is not a result of how many uh, uh, hungry people you feed or how big your building is or, or, or how many newspaper articles you get for mercy ministry. No, your strength, that's not true strength. True strength is not that you're busting at the seams and you have to expand. True strength is not that your budget giving is, is, is the highest it's ever been. That's not true strength. It's not true strength, church. True strength is you, you and I and us as a church and our dependence upon Christ. True strength is connected to our dependence upon Christ. That's you and that's me and that's all of us. If I could push us and point us in any direction over the next whatever years, it is that you, I, we are called to dependence on Christ and true strength is only through dependence in Christ by acknowledging that all gifts, all power, and all good has already been given by God it not only removes the opportunity for us to boast, but by tying, by tying the truth that our strength is an outcome of dependence on Christ is the most humbling of realities for a local church. I've never been asked this. When asked how your church is doing, you typically go to those common thing, right? Budgets and butts in pews. Verses 7 through 9. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship, koinonia, fellowship, common union of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul reminds them of the necessity to continue abiding depending on uniting with Christ in the midst of a sinful world. Brothers and sisters, the mark of a healthy church, the marks of a healthy church may be good and well to study. Churches may grow, will have great societal impact, and may build facilities, but how we stand in contrast to the power of sin, how we stand in contrast to the power of sin in the world is the mark of faithfulness in Corinth, in Boone, and in every church, in every place until the Lord returns. How we stand against sin by abiding in Christ is the mark of a healthy church. That which makes obedience necessary and gives its meaning is that the Christian continues to live in a world under the power of sin, but not succumbing to the sin itself. Our daily dependence on the grace, mercy, and person of Christ in union with Him. Brothers and sisters, do you hear what I'm saying? A church's health is marked by how it stands in contrast to the sin of this world. What does that call us to? That calls us to purity, to holiness, but all in all, it calls us to abide. It calls us to John 15, abide. Do you hear what I'm saying? This is not something that's popular. How a church health may be known in Corinth and Boone is how we stand in contrast to the sin of the world. Wow.
but it also calls us to orient and prioritize our lives. When we stand in contrast to the sin of the world, abiding in Christ, our lives look fundamentally different. We prioritize our lives this way. Now, I'm going to go back to this because this is a really great illustration. At first, I said, I don't love it here. Because I think it communicates wrongly what biblical giving is. Biblical giving is not a budgetary process where you sit down and look at your income and make allotments to different things. Biblical giving is an act of worship, of sacrificial generosity, where you give and invest grace freely because grace has freely been given to you. Christians are called to be the most generously giving people in God's creation. And so that means that these numbers have no effect on the true giver's heart. Because we give abundantly because we have been given abundantly. And so the second aspect of this idea that our dependence upon God, I think there's a clear application here as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer helps us understand it as he understands a lot. He says, the way to misuse our possessions is to use them as an insurance against tomorrow. Anxiety is always directed to tomorrow. Whereas goods are in the strictest sense meant to be used only for today. He is, he is emphasizing the teachings of Jesus that tells us to pray simply for our daily bread and promises us that if God clothes the lilies of the field and provides for the birds of the air, how much more will he do for us? Christians are not only marked in dependence by radical generosity, but by radical trust. So brothers and sisters, this is the kind of church, this dependent type of church, one marked by prayer, by discipline, by need, by want, by imagining Christ. And here's why it's so important to me. Because it is only these people, those people that Paul speaks about in verses 4 through 9, who will sustain unto the end. Only an uncommon people like this will sustain until the end. And I just hope, again last week I imagined some, I imagined a picture for this, this is Vicki in here? She's going to be in the second service, she's not here. Vicki, she's, okay, so I can tell you then. Um, last week I imagined, I don't know, in the second service, I just imagined a picture of Perkinsville Church years from now, where basically just we, we're, we're overfilled with, with the least of these people who, who have pennies to give because they're orphans and widows and, and just a, a commune, a common union. Like I imagine that and kind of just to, to lighten the mood a little bit, Vicki said, I, she, she asked if I imagined her being, you know, old and withered singing, precious Lord, take my, take my hand up here in the front, in the front pew. And I said, of course, Vicki, I, I want you there. I want you there for, for as long as the Lord keeps you here. But I shared a vision and an imagination for Perkinsville Church and not, not, a, not like a planning leadership vision. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of stuff. Just the sweetness of it. The simplicity of that. Of us in common union together. 
sustained to the end. And, and I do, I, I pray that, that, that throughout this book of 1 Corinthians, the power of unity is what it's called, that we be amongst the generation that no longer looks to itself. And when I say we, I'm talking, if you're in this room, I'm speaking to you. May we be amongst the generation that no longer looks to itself as a source of strength in the church of Jesus Christ. May we be amongst the generation that sees a, a, a revival or a reformation of Christ-centered dependence on whose prayer meetings are filled with maybe even more people than its worship services. May we be amongst a generation that no longer looks to itself because only these type of people will sustain until the end. In almost every issue that Paul addresses in this letter, he plays a very important card. You know what he does almost every time? Every single debate that, 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 that Paul brings forth, except for one, the issue of headdresses, which we'll talk about. I don't see that being a big issue at Perkinsville. Do women wear headdresses or not? Um, but in every other issue, you know where he points them? The future. He does it right here too. He's, he said, listen, look at who you are in God in Christ and look where God is taking. He, he points here, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In every single one of these issues, it's like Paul saying, why are you talking amongst one another? Look to the heavens where you, will, where you are promised a, a heavenly home with the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you all debate the junk you debate, basically? Why are you wasting my time? Eat a ham sandwich, Right? He, I mean, you think about the culture of the church. I am, I am overwhelmed at how quickly we look earthly in the midst of church decisions. Me, you, all of us. And that's exactly where the division emerges. And Paul is saying, hey, remember where you're going. Remember that this is a vapor. And you may feel like this is the most important thing in this moment. I got a, I got a secret for you. It's not. It's not the biggest thing ever. He grounds every admonition except for one in the book of 1 Corinthians in eschatology or end times. Because the problem with Corinth, they loved the world too much. And so because they loved the world so much, they had an over-realized eschatology. You know what that means? They believed that the kingdom of God had fully come now. That this is what it was. The reason that they enjoyed the world so much is because they had adapted their theology to tell them they could. And Paul every time says, no, you are prepared for something bigger. And so here, while you wait, be simple. Remember where you came from and remember where you're going. That is the koinonia community of Scripture. That's the Greek word for common union. That is a bunch of people who realize and worship and recognize what God has done for them and by faith know where God is taking them. And that dash where all the arguments happen, that's what Paul's saying. Keep your eyes off of that. Keep your focus off of that. This is how we share in a simple vision that Paul establishes in these few verses. Because we are the people who have received this grace and this honor and this blessing and this strength and we've been called to do it together. Love it. Hate it. Indifferent to it. It's impossible to see, read this text and not see that not only have we been called to Christ, we've been called to Christ together. Come on. Group hug. That's the idea here. So figure it out. 
Be like siblings. Go in your room and talk it out for a little while, but figure out how you're going to deal with this. Figure out how you're going to look at these people and love them in communion. Oh, I got an idea. How about you remember what Christ did for you and her or him? And how about you remember where Christ has called you and him? How about you stop looking at the moment and the things that frustrate you and the things that bother you or the things that that brother or sister see differently and you realize, and guess what? Christ has done the same thing for you and he is doing the same thing for us. That's ham sandwich goodness right there. Love one another and the world will know you are Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is not great strategic envisioning, although helpful, that will strengthen God's church and Christ's church in 2020 and beyond. It's not all those wonderful things. and It's not the great things that God is allowing us to do at Perkinsville. It's not those things that make a church strong. It's a simplicity. It's a church that eats ham sandwiches together. That regardless of the good and the bad and the wins and the losses and the ups and the downs and the giving and the non-giving and everything that happens and metrics and measures and all that stuff and the policies and the programs, it's not that stuff. It's us. Together, given everything we need by God, promised everything we need by God for the future. That's the kind of church. And we'll figure out in the details ahead some of the ways in which it's been twisted. But until then, I'd love to pray in closing and give you some some points of... um, Potential application uh, in addition to what you've heard already. I'd like to pray these words for us, so let's pray. God, I, I, I thank you for Perkinsville Church because of the grace given by you in Christ Jesus. And pray that in every way this church may be enriched in Christ in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony amongst Christ was confirmed here. Pray, Lord, we know, Lord, that the people of this church are not lacking in any gift as they wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is sustaining us to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord. God is faithful by whom you were called, by whom we were called, into the fellowship of His Son, Christ Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen. So something that is simple in the life of the church is actually a few years old here at Perkinsville. In 2017, we did this whole ideation of fearing what, what, who are we? What is God calling us to? And one of the questions we asked is, how do we know when we're successful as a church? How do you know when we're successful? Is it because people in the restaurant say, I hear good things. Y'all are just doing great things. Is it that we added another worship service? Or Here are here's some, some questions to help us answer when we are successful. When we are experiencing the fullness of, of, of God's presence in our lives. And it's when our lives have a rhythm to them, a gospel rhythm. And so you'll notice these things don't say anything about budgets and butts necessarily. They're asking of you as people, as redeemed children of Christ. Are you meeting with him? Are you conversing with him both in in hearing from him and speaking to him and 
meeting and prayer? Are you gathering weekly? Why? Because we're called in common union together. Common union is consistent. I've never seen a community work that you don't see but every other month. Am I giving to the church faithfully? Remember what I talked about. That is not an exercise of of pragmatism or practical matters. That is graciously giving, not just here, but the kingdom of God. Because you've received freely. Am I having a meal with a neighbor frequently? Hospitality and hope, brothers and sisters, with those around us. Am I sharing the gospel regularly? How could you not? How could you not, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not talking. You go, hi, I have this presentation for you. I'm just saying, are you, are you sharing the gospel in the rhythm of your life? How could you not, is my question. And so these measures of success, if you'll notice, if we depend on Christ, if we recognize that everything has been given us in the gospel, everything, and our rhythm of our week is a reflection of our dependence upon Christ, then this is who we are. This is just who we are. And so I'm not doing this to shame you. Don't feel that. That's, that's like the enemy going in there with a shame jab. I'm just telling you, brothers and sisters, this is what the church is right here and more. This is what the church is. It's a people marked by these kinds of things and the rhythms of their life. And I, and I just, I don't want you to pray as we sing. And I want you to, to rather than look upon your own strength to do these things this morning, here's, I don't want you to go that direction. I want you to thank Christ for doing these things, whether it be hospitality, welcoming you in, preparing a place for you in glory, right? Freely giving the gospel to you abundantly, right? Allowing you to meet with God at open access at any time of the day. I mean, these are the things that Christ has done for us. And so let's just thank him for that. Let's rather than just say, oh, God, help me call up my neighbor I don't like. No, gosh, God, thank you for dwelling with me. Thank you for showing me what it is to be a neighbor. Change the prayer, the prayer life and get it off of yourself. Come on now. Quit saying, oh, I got to do this and help me do this. No, just say, thank you for already doing it. And because you did it, I know it and have all that I need. Let's pray, church. This is, this is, this is church. And so let's just, let's sing together. Let's do that. Let's, uh, let's honor him. Stand up and let's worship him.